but I talk about in high schools how the jug of change is a perfect example of how in their lives too, they'll be faced with choices. And by making the wrong decision, it could not only have an impact in that moment, but it could have a lasting impact. Because I am sure there were many times that Maurice would look at that jug of change when I was not around and say, how is she ever gonna know if I just take a few corners? take a few coins, but he was smart enough to know that if he did and he got caught, it was going to have an impact on our friendship because our friendship was built on trust. Yet another episode of the Empowerment Perspective Podcast. I go by the name of Dr. Demetra A. Doozy. This is a special, special episode for multiple reasons. Um, as many as you know, I, I read a lot. Um, and with my staff, I do a book club with my staff. Um, and this one particular guidance counselor one day stopped me in the hallway and said, I have something for you, Dr. Josie, that I think will resonate with you. So I, I grabbed the book. And if you know me, my ADHD is all over the place. So I read like three or four different books at the same time. I'm just crazy of it like that. So I started reading this particular book. And then I started finding myself putting the other books down. And I started really focusing in on this particular story. And, and things in the, in the story kind of resonated with me um, in, in my life and in the people that are in my life and how my family kind of helps other people along the way. And I think this is why the guidance counselor said this is a good story for you. It kind of reminds me a, a lot of you. So I dig into the book. Um, I get to the end of the, of the story and I really felt moved by, by the story. It, it brought me back to some um, occurrences in my life. And again, like I said, with my family. So I, as you know, on this podcast, if you follow us, I do talk to a lot of authors. So I go to the back of the book and I, you know, I reach out to, I believe it was her publicist. And, and I said, eh, she's not going to email me back. I'll just try it and see what happens. I'm sure she has other things to do. And I'm in my office one day and I hear the little chime go off and, and, and the author actually responded back and said, absolutely, I'll be on your podcast. So this particular episode is not going to be tied to a season. I want this to sit by itself because I think the story is so, so powerful um, out there. So I would like to introduce everybody to, um, I might mess the name up again, but Laura Schroff, is that correct? That's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Welcome to the Empowerment Perspective podcast. We finally got it right. We were messing around with some dates here and there, but hey, things happen. But I think we were brought here tonight for a specific reason. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And Dr. Josie, I very much appreciate being a part of your the Empowerment Perspective group and your podcast. So I am honored to be here. Awesome. We all we always start this show with the why, but I'm going to ask a question before that. Um, just tell us a little bit about the story. I mean, obviously I've read it. I don't want to give everything away, but just give us a brief synopsis of the story. Sure. Um, the story takes place back in 1986. At the time I was working at USA Today and it was over Labor Day weekend and I was supposed to go to the US Open and it rained. And so the open was canceled and about two o'clock in the afternoon, the sun came out and I decided to go for a walk. And as I was walking up West 56th street, this very young boy, he was 11, 11 years old at the time, 
he said to me as I passed, he said, excuse me, lady, do you have any spare change? I'm hungry. And originally I said no. But as I got to Broadway, what I realized and what resonated with me was the words, I'm hungry. So I went back to the boy and I said to him, I don't want to give you any money, but if you're hungry, I said, I'll take you over to McDonald's and I'll get you something to eat. He hesitated for a moment. And then he looked at me and he said to me, well, could I have a Big Mac? So I said, sure. He said, what about French fries? I said, you can have French fries. He said, what about a Diet Coke? I said, you can have a Diet Coke. He said, a milkshake? I said, you can have anything you'd like to eat. I said, but I would love to join you because I really had no plans. So again, he hesitated. And then we went over to McDonald's and McDonald's was right down the street from where I lived. And I thought it was really kind of cute that at 11, he was negotiating on what he wanted to eat. And so when he sat down, I think what struck me the most was not only was I, did I think that he was really adorable, but he had these really beautiful trusting eyes. So he ordered his lunch and then I ordered mine and I said, I'd love to sit down and join you. And so we started to chat and I said to him, my name was Laura and he told me his name was Maurice. And he asked me where I lived and I pointed across the street and it was a high rise apartment building. And he said, oh, he said, do you live in an apartment building? Do you live in an apartment building too? So I said, yes, no, a hotel. And I said, no, I said, it's an apartment building. He said, oh, he said, do you live in a place like the Jeffersons? <laughs> this goes back into the eighties. And so I said, well, not quite. I said, because the Jefferson's apartment was really big. I said, and I have a studio. I said, where do you live? And he told me he lived at the Bryan Hotel, which back in the 1980s was probably one of the most dangerous shelter hotels in all of New York City. I lived on West 54th Street and he lived on West 56th Street. What was amazing is that 55th Street crossed the street where I would enter into his world or he would enter into my world. But I knew back when I was living there that I always kind of crossed the street to say, stay away from the Bryan Hotel. And I asked him who he lived with and he told me he lived with his mother, his grandmothers, his two sisters, his aunt and two baby cousins. And so then he said to me, do you work? So I said, yeah, I said, I work at USA Today. And he wanted to know what I did. And I kind of explained that I sold advertising space. And a little while later, I said to him, does your mom work? He said, well, not really, because she's really busy. And, you know, she stays home and she cleans and she dusts. And I got the impression, and he later told me it was kind of like Beaver to Lever. Um, leave it to Beaver. And so... We had just this really wonderful talk. And when it was over, I said to him, I have time. I said, would you like to take a walk to Central Park? And he said, sure. So we walked to Central Park and we continued to chat, just really no nonsense information. And as we came out of the park, I said to him, would you like some ice cream? And I pointed over to haagen and he said to me, oh, he said, designer ice cream? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess so. And when we got done with the ice cream, he said to me, Miss Laura, do you like to play video games? So I said, well, sure, I do. And there was a video arc arcade right down the street. In fact, it was in between 
56th Street and 54th Street. So we played some games and I then had to leave. And I said to him, listen, I said, if you're ever hungry, I said, here's my card. I said, call me. I said, I'll buy you lunch. And then of course, later on that night, I thought how ridiculous he's on the corner, you know, asking for spare change and I'm asking him to give me a call. But on Thursday that night, I just couldn't seem to get him out of my mind the whole week. So on Thursday night after work, I decided to see if I could try to find him. And unbeknownst to me that night, he was really hungry and he thought maybe if he stood on the same corner, he would see me again and maybe I would take him to dinner. So as I turned the corner there, he was standing in the same spot in the same burgundy sweats. I asked him if he was hungry. He told me he was starving. I said, so let's go to McDonald's. We went to McDonald's and I said, I've got a great idea. I said, how about if you meet me on the corner next Monday night? I said, and I'll take you to the Hard Rock Cafe. And he gave me this big, huge smile. And then he asked if he could wear the clothes that he had on. So I said, of course you can. I said, why don't you meet me on the corner at seven? And when he showed up, his face sparkled, his burgundy sweats were clean. And it was clear to me that he had made every attention to be dressed for this very special dinner. That night he had a huge steak. And when dinner was over, I said, I've got a great idea. Why don't you meet me on the corner next Monday night and we'll go out to dinner again. And so we did. And what's really funny is we went to the Broadway, Broadway diner, which was um, between 55th and 56th. And he ordered breakfast. Hmm. And I said, oh, I said, why are you ordering breakfast? Why aren't you having dinner? And he looked at me and he didn't understand. And I said, oh, I said, well, breakfast is food for the morning and dinner is food for, the, for dinner. But if you want breakfast, you can have breakfast. And so he ordered this big, huge breakfast and then he ordered an orange juice. And when the orange juice came, he said to me, oh, Miss Laura, he said, this juice is nasty. I said, you haven't even tasted it. He said, oh, he said, it's nasty. He said, there's all this stuff floating on the top. And I said, oh, I said, well, that's called pulp. I said, that's because it's fresh. I said, trust me. I said, it's really good. And if you don't like it, we'll get you something else. And of course he loved it. And when we got done, I said, I've got a great idea. Why don't you meet me on the corner next Monday night? And we wound up getting together every Monday night for the next four years, hundreds of times thereafter. And we developed this incredible friendship and bond. I'm listening to you tell the story and I'm getting chills because our lives kind of parallel a lot in a lot of ways. Um, I actually used to work on West 66th Street, <laughs> uh, not oh. too far. And I was in, in television, close to advertising. Okay. My brother actually mentored a student um, in Chicago by the name of Maurice. So I, all these things that are happening is kind of sending chills down my spine a little bit. So, oh. so you you meet this young man and you you, you enter his life and, and enter his world and obviously have a, a huge impact on it. Um, uh, why did you decide to write this book um, based upon, you know, this story? Well, you know, as the years developed, there were so many things about our friendship that were so enlightening for me, as well as it was so enlightening for him. For example, I was the first person he ever met that worked 
he, mm -hmm. his family, his people, unfortunately, they did not work. And he loved the idea that I worked and he wanted to know all about that. But for me, you know, people would always say, you know, lucky, Maurice was so lucky to have met me. And I would always reply that I was so lucky to have met him because he showed me a world that I was completely unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm little things like one night we were playing a game um, Monopoly and he kept sniffling. And I said to him, Ooh, I said, you're grossing me out. I said, why don't you go into the bathroom and blow your nose? And he looked at me and he said to me, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? He said, I never heard that before. I said, didn't anyone ever teach you how to blow your nose? And he said, no. So there were things that he said that just struck me. I would say probably on the fifth night that we got together, I said to him, I have a great idea. I said, I thought I would make you a home cooked meal. And I told him we would do it for the following Monday. <clears throat> and he was really concerned and he actually was really nervous. And that night he came to my apartment with a box cutter in his pocket because he was sure at 11 years old that this was the night that he was gonna find out what I really wanted from him. Mm. So when he came into my apartment, he was looking around. It was a studio apartment, but it was a nice apartment. And I said to him, we have to have a serious talk. I said, I'm gonna get you a Diet Coke. I said, why don't you take a seat on the couch? And so he did. And I came in and I sat next to him and I said to him, I wanna have a really serious conversation with you. I said, but it's, it's gonna be the only conversation we're ever gonna have about this. I said, the reason why I invited you to my apartment is I consider you a friend. I said, and friendship is built on trust, but I wanna make it really clear to you. If you're ever, if anything is ever missing from my apartment, we'll no longer be friends. And he hesitated for a moment and then he looked at me and he said to me, Miss Laurie, I just want to be my friend. That's it. I said, well, yeah, I said, of course. And with that, this 11 year old child stood up, he put his hand out and he said to me, a deal is a deal. Mm. And that was the night that solidified our friendship, which was built on trust. So over the years, as people started to hear about my story, our story, it wasn't until 1997, which was a year late, 11 years later, that a colleague of mine who was working at USA Today at the time had told the editor at Good Housekeeping about this woman who became friends with this kid. And they were having either breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And so Ellen said to Valerie, I'm just curious, whatever happened to that woman who is friends with that kid? And Valerie was like, you're never going to believe it, but they still get together every Monday night. And she was like, that's unbelievable. Said, I would love to do a story on them. Um, and it was good housekeeping. I said, so Valerie asked me and I said, sure. And when the story came out, I was working in advertising. Email was not quite out yet. I'm dating myself. <laughs> and um started getting letter emails, not emails, phone calls from people in the industry. I saw this article. This is crazy. This is such a good story. And people started to tell me I should write a book. And I'm like, write a book. It's just our story. 
But there were so many things that happened that developed over the years. And, you know, for me, it really gave me an inside look at how children who live in underprivileged homes and shelters, how difficult their lives were and are. So I started to think about it. And then it wasn't until 2008 when I took an early retirement package from Time Inc. I moved to Florida for six months, came back because I realized I was never going to have a good hair day for the rest of my life. And I started working at Condé Nast. And I kept trying to work on my book because I had probably in Florida, because I had time, I was working at Boca Raton Magazine, but I'd come home at five o'clock and I had all this time. It was the middle of the afternoon for me. And I started writing my book. And what a lot of people don't know when you read the book is I never planned to talk about my childhood. Mm. It was never part of my original outline, but it wasn't until I was taking Maurice to the baseball game. Mm -hmm. We had unbelievable tickets at the time. Peter Ubaroff was the commissioner. And I thought he would just love a baseball game. And that night I thought about my brother, Frank, and how much he loved baseball. And I thought about the myth story. And then before I knew it, I started writing the myth story. And then I started intertwining my childhood. But my original outline never included that. Mm -hmm. So I probably finished about 90% of the book. I moved back to New York. I started working at Condé Nast at Brides Magazine. And I kind of put it on a back burner. I pulled it out a couple of times. And then about 18 months later, 17 of us got fired. And I decided that I really wanted to make a go of my book. I had no idea how to go about it, but I decided the first thing I needed to do was finish it. And then when I finished it, honestly, I realized that I needed someone to help me bring it to another level. So I contacted some of my colleagues at People, a colleague at People Magazine, who was on the business side and I worked on the on the, she was on the edit side and I worked on the business side and I told her what I wanted to do. And at the time she was familiar with our story because when the article broke in Good Housekeeping, I was then in, in style mm -hmm. and she recommended a, a man by the name of Alex Trezanowski, who was my co-writer. And what's interesting about Alex, he wrote all of the human interest stories for People Magazine. So any cover story that was not a celebrity, he did the story. And so I contacted him and I met him and I told him the story. I gave him what I wrote and he agreed to work on it with me. And it just became this magical experience. Mm -hmm. I look back on it because I had no idea of what to expect. You know, I said to Maurice, I'm writing a book about our story and he was okay because he never thought the book would get published <laughs> and even my family my one sister nancy was not thrilled about me incorporating my childhood into the book and my sister annette said to her just cut her a break let her do her thing the book's never going to get sold so don't get worried about it and it it just fell into place yes i remember i was writing my book and on my personal life and it, 
as much as you want to tell your own story, you're tied to other people's story, right? And you're, you kind of have to be careful on how you tell the those people's stories. Like you mentioned your sister and your, your family and even Marisa's story. Um, yes. You kind of touched on it a little bit, but was there any, like, did you, when you were going through the writing process, was there any point where you were like, well, let me, I need to be careful in this particular, you know, story or this particular thing that I'm going to write about? Or did you just kind of just put everything out there and kind of let the chips fall where they may? Well, I wanted this story to be as authentic and as true as it possibly could be. So, but I also felt that it was not only my story, it was our story, but it was his story. Mm -hmm. So as I did the chapters that really pertain to Maurice, I did send him those chapters so that we could discuss them and make sure that we were on the same page. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, when I went to the Bryant Hotel, I really wanted to, I, I had plans to drive to the baseball game. I wasn't gonna take the subway. <laughs> and so I gave him a permission slip and I said to him, you need to have your mom or your grandma Rose sign this slip. I said, cause I can't take you in my car without permission. Mm -hmm. And so when he didn't show up with the permission slip, I went to the Bryant Hotel and a couple of things really happened. I had the opportunity to see firsthand what his room looked like, but I met his mother. And honestly, I was familiar with people who drank, but I had met, I was not familiar with people who did drugs. Mm. And I was, she, I, she was really strung out on drugs. So Grandma Rose then came to the door and I said to Grandma Rose, hi, I'm a friend of Maurice's and I would love to take him to a baseball game. She didn't know of me at this time. I said, and I was hoping that you might be able to give me permission to let him drive in my car. So I gave her the permission slip with a pen and she signed it. And the next thing I knew she slammed the door on my face but I had a chance to look at, look at his room, you know, and his room was probably 12 by 12. It consisted of two single beds with no bedding, pillows, or blankets. In one corner, there was a chair, and on the opposite side sat a half of a refrigerator with a television that sat on top. <clears throat> so when he read that chapter, he called me, and he said to me, my mother didn't look like that. And I said, well, don't you really remember? I said, I know, Maurice. I said, it's really hard. I said, we love our parents a lot. And when we're about to put information out there that is gonna put them in a bad light, I said, I know it's really difficult. I said, but we want the story to be true. I said, but maybe I don't remember it the way that it was. So I'm gonna call my friend Lisa, who was with me that day, and I'm going to have her describe how your mom looked. Mm. And so she basically described Maurice. <clears throat> Maurice's mom exactly how she looked and then he agreed to do it and then he called me two weeks later and he said to me I found a picture of my mom he said you're right she did look like that mm. so then we got to the the chapter of when I took him out to my sister Annette's house and that was the first time he had ever been outside of New York City he had been on Long Island he had never been in a house her house was a normal house he thought it was a mansion and driving home, what, he played on the swings with the kids because my, my nieces and my nephew were all about the same age. 
and he even went for a bike ride with Derek. But my sister Annette and Bruce can clearly remember as I did that Bruce kind of helped him with the bike and he called me. He said to me, I was 11 years old. I knew how to ride a bike. And I said, well, don't you remember Bruce was kind of helping you? He said, that's ridiculous. I knew how to ride a bike. I said, you know what? You're right. I said, I'm sure I'm wrong. I thought I'm not gonna split hairs over. He knew how to ride a bike. He didn't have to ride a bike. Who really cares? And so I changed that. So Maurice was very much involved. He's actually a full partner in the book as well. Um, in all of my books. So it was hard for him, just as it was hard for me, but he did read all the chapters and very much approved exactly what was going into the book. So there were no surprises for him at all. Mm. I'm reading through the book and, there, and the title of the book is in, in, Invisible Thread, but there was certain objects when I was reading that kind of connected you to. And the one story that I'm, I'm thinking of that I, I found super, super exciting was um, when he asked you to put his lunch in the brown paper bag. And, and you know, because it showed that, you know, those kids at school had it and showed that, you know, someone cared for them, that that kind of thing. So that kind of tied you two together. And then I saw the bike as another instrument that kind of tied you two. So throughout this, this journey, there was these objects that kind of uh, were so meaningful to him that kind of bonded you guys um even even more um i think there was a even the, the money uh on the on the floor where you were keeping the, the coins in there so there's all these different things that are kind of um you know tying you guys together um and one thing you said earlier about building trust and a lot of our people that follow us are educators and we talk all the time at the department perspective of relationship building and building trust and, and kids don't go to school and go to places that they don't like and they're not going to learn and those things of that nature. Um, so your story in itself um, and those elements, I think that every educator should be reading uh, this on how to, to make these connections. Um, and then the other piece is, it's kind of, I, I tell myself I have these spidey senses, right? And I kind of get these butterflies in my stomach where you, something's not right or there's something that is right. And every once in a while, I come across somebody and you just, you know, in passing in, in life and I get these butterflies, like there's a reason why I'm connected to this person in this particular moment in time. And I think we all have this superpower and I think we just need to listen to it because uh, wonderful stories like yours could come out of it and you never know who you're going to help and impact. So um, definitely thank you so much for this, uh, this story. Now, you have other books that you have um, as well. Are the stories connected or is they separate? Are they connected or are they separate um, uh, books in itself? No, they're all pretty much connected, but I'd love to go back to just the jug of change mm -hmm. because like you, you speak at schools and you have this incredible impact. When An Invisible Thread came out, I had no idea of what to expect. And I would say probably three weeks after the book was out, I did get a call from Tully High School in Tully, New York. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I always talk about, this is really with high school, is the jug of change. Because as time went on, Maurice would come over to my apartment on a Saturday. I would let him stay at my apartment alone. People used to say to me, I can't believe you just like let him stay in your apartment. And I used to say, I trust him. And he knows that I trust him. 
and that jug of change. He had a, always a hard time understanding how I had so much money that I could have this big jug of change filled with money. When my father, when we were growing up, my father was a bartender. And so he would all take his tips and he would put his tips into this big jug and tax time, we would take all the money out and we would sit around and roll it all up. And that's how we paid his taxes. Can you imagine? But I talk about in high schools, how the jug of change is a perfect example of how in their lives too, they'll be faced with choices. And by making the wrong decision, it could not only have an impact in that moment, but it could have a lasting impact because I am sure there were many times that Maurice would look at that jug of change when I was not around and say, how is she ever gonna know if I just take a few, coin, take a few coins? But he was smart enough to know that if he did and he got caught, it was gonna have an impact on our friendship because our friendship was built on trust. And I try to really use that as an example, how we all do have that little voice in our heads that tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do, and that we should listen to it because it is our best friend and it will never steer us wrong. And I have to say, I absolutely believe in all the years that he would come to my apartment. He knew he could have anything he wanted to eat but he also was smart enough to know, I mean, I would even leave my jewelry out. He just, he was trustworthy and he knew that he had a good thing and I knew I had a great thing and he was smart enough not to touch the change because it just wasn't worth it. It's awesome, awesome. So we're coming to the end of our show. Uh, I'm not going to do the, the this or that um, because we had some great conversations and I think it's a great story. So again, this is uh, The Invisible Thread. Where can people find this book? The book is, you know, I always kind of hope that they're going to go to their local bookstores because it's so important that we do support them. But it is on Amazon and it's also, of course, on Barnes & Noble. In March of 2022, we did come out with a 10th anniversary issue. So there is um, a new forward in this book, which is written by me. And then the afterwood is written by Maurice. So this is a new edition. And then I have a young reader's edition. And this is the same story as the adult book, but a lot of the harsh information that is not appropriate for children between the ages of eight and 12 has been deleted. So for example, this book has no mention of drugs in it um I had to be extremely mindful even not busting Christmas because kids eight to 12 they believe in Santa Claus and then the Christmas book is an invisible thread Christmas story and this was the first Christmas that Maurice spent with my family and I assured him that Santa Claus would be able to figure out where to bring his presents but what makes this book so sweet is the year before he met me, he went to the Salvation Army on Christmas Day and he wanted a hot meal. And he also got to pick a toy out of a bin of toys and he picked out a teddy bear. And on Christmas morning, before we left to go out to my sister Annette's house, he tucked the teddy bear under the tree. So when I got home that night, 
there was a present for me. And what I talk about with kids again in schools is sometimes it's the children who have the least amount that are willing to share the most. And then I said it in Invisible Thread and on my website, if you have your own Invisible Thread story of how someone's come into your life and has made a profound difference, share your story with me. And the book came out on November 1st and by Christmas, I got my first Invisible Thread story. So this is really a compilation of other people's Invisible Thread stories of how someone came into their life and made a difference. So there is this thread that kind of goes through all of the books. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much. My time is running uh, short here. It's going to kick us off in a minute. Um, but I wanted to make sure that uh, we keep our podcast um, within 30, 40 minutes because our audience requested. So that's what we do. So thank you so much again for your story. Um, I'm going to wrap this up for our audience just for some housekeeping things. Um, on March 15th, I will be presenting at the NJ. A-M-L-E, um, Conference for Middle School Leaders. Um, that particular one is Cultural Competency for uh, Educational Leaders. I will be in Chesterfield Elementary School in February, um, speaking also on culturally relevant pedagogy and um, teaching practices. Um, we got some other things coming up for the end of the school year, but we always are um, out here working. Um, we will be dropping season nine of the podcast um, coming this spring. So we're going to make our way to 10, uh, probably in the fall. So that's what we're going to go for. And then um, we have our bike-a-thon. It's still time for you to join the American Cancer Society bike ride for, with me. I'm going to be riding all the way from Philadelphia to Atlantic City. We do it every year um, on a bicycle. Yes, on a bicycle, 66 miles. Um, we might do the century. We, we'll see. Um, but definitely thank you um, again, Laura, for being a part of it. We'll make sure your contact information is out on our, um, our websites and social medias and all that stuff. So our audience, until next time, stay empowered.